We turn now to God's holy and inspired and inerrant word to the scriptures, and specifically we will be reading the second letter of John, second John. You notice across the page it's third John, and we'll be talking about that letter this afternoon. This morning it's second John. <clears throat> Let's listen here to God's word then in this uh, inspired portion, this inspired letter of second John the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Do I have much to write to you? I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. And here ends the reading of God's inspired word. May he bless that reading, not only to our hearts, that word, but also as we reflect upon the meaning and the message here contained in this portion of Scripture. And people of God, you may be interested to know, or perhaps you will know already, that the letter that we just read, 2 John, is the shortest book of the Bible. There are only five books in the Holy Scriptures which are not divided into chapters because they are short. One is in the Old Testament and four in the New Testament. And you might just, for a moment, give yourself a mental quiz to see if you know which those books are. The one in the Old Testament is the prophecy of Obadiah. It has just 21 verses. And the ones in the New Testament are all letters or epistles. They are Philemon, which has 25 verses, 2 John, which has just 13 verses, 3 John, which has only 14 verses, and Jude, which has 25 verses. In fact, because they are all so short, one writer or commentator has referred to these letters as the postcard epistles. Because when you send somebody a postcard over against a regular letter, you usually write only a brief message on it. It's intended to be short. 
But not just because these biblical books are so short, they can also be easily overlooked and ignored. Yes, in our reading as well as in our preaching. And so I thought it might be profitable for us today to look at two of those short books, both of them the letters of John, 2 John and 3 John. This morning we're going to look at 2 John, and then this afternoon we'll look at 3 John. Now this second letter of John is a very beautiful letter. There were some in the early church who, who felt that it shouldn't be in the Bible or in the canon of Scripture, as we say, because of its brevity. It seemed like a rather insignificant letter compared to such grand epistles as the letter to the Romans or Hebrews. When the Hebrew, the New Testament canon was adopted, rather, the Holy Spirit also motivated the church to include that letter of Second John in the inspired canon, because it does have a message for the church of all ages and all places. It exhorts the church to walk in truth and love. That, it's, that is its theme, as we'll see. But before we get to that message, let me first of all say a little more about this short letter as a whole. And to begin with, let's note the human writer of this letter and how he describes himself. He writes this way in verse 1, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. You see, letters in ancient times always began with who was writing it, which makes a lot more sense when you think about it than the way we write our letters today, where we typically begin, you know, dear so-and-so, how are you doing, and say some more things, and then at the end of the letter we might say, love so-and-so. So it isn't until you come to the end of the letter that you know who is writing the letter. Of course, usually we do know who is writing the letter already before that because it's in an envelope, and that envelope contains, perhaps, likely, an address on it and who is writing it. But in ancient times, they, they really did it in a smarter way. They had no envelopes, for one thing, but the writer of a letter then typically started out by identifying himself. And so notice how in John, the writer begins by identifying himself. But he doesn't give us his name, does he? He simply calls himself the elder. The elder to the elect lady and her children. And who is that elder? Well, this is definitely a reference to the Apostle John. And that's why it's also called the letter of John in your Bibles, but don't remember, don't forget that, that that title is not in the original scriptures. John doesn't mention his personal name here, but it is clear that it is John who is writing this. And that's typical of John, it seems, in his other letters as well. He did not identify himself as such by name in his first letter, the first letter of John, in his third letter of John, in the Gospel of John. He did write the book of Revelation as well, and there he does identify himself by name. But it's almost a universal testimony of the church that it was John who wrote all of these inspired books. And the books themselves give clear indication of that as well. Notice that John refers to himself as the elder. What does that title indicate? Well, for one thing, it points to his age. Because the word elder in the original Greek, presbuteros, means basically older. 
And John himself got to be the oldest of all the apostles. In fact, you know, he lived almost 30 years longer than any of the other apostles. Paul died as a martyr in Rome in the year 68, AD 68. Peter died around the same time, also in Rome, as a martyr. But John was still around, living in the year AD 98. He almost made it to the very end of the first century. And he almost himself got to be a century, a hundred years old. And so it isn't surprising that the servant of Christ came to be known as the elder. The churches which he served in Asia Minor, Ephesus, for example, came to look upon himself, upon him as a spiritual father. However, the word elder also came to be, as you know, a designation of a certain spiritual position in the church, the way we still use that word today. The elders are office bearers in God's church. They exercise spiritual oversight over the flock of Christ. In the early church, there were two kinds of elders, teaching elders, who also came to be known as pastors or teachers, and ruling elders. And so in Reformed Church polity, as we practice it, the pastor is also an elder. He serves alongside the other elders. The pastor is the teaching elder. His task is the task of proclaiming the gospel. The other elders have oversight of the flock. You know, even some of the apostles, which, by the way, apostles is no longer an office in the church today, because an apostle had to be an eyewitness, an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the risen Christ. But some of them also called themselves elders. The apostle Peter, for example, referred to himself as a fellow elder when he addressed elders in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 1. That's also how John refers to himself here in 2 John. And also in 3 John, he calls himself the elder. So that's the writer of this letter. And then let's notice who were the recipients of this brief letter which he wrote, now called 2 John. And he puts it this way in verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. Notice again, no specific name is mentioned here to the person or persons to whom John is writing. He didn't begin as the Apostle Paul typically began his letters to the church at Rome or to the saints in Philippi, or to my son Timothy. John mentions no name. Rather, he wrote to the elect lady and her children. Now, who was that elect lady and her children? There are two interpretations that have been given for that expression. One is that John wrote this letter to a specific woman and her family, to a Christian lady, and her children that John knew well, apparently, so that he didn't bother to identify them by name. And if that were the case, then this is a very personal letter from John to this specific person and her family. And while that may well be the case, that's certainly a good possibility. In fact, the word lady in Greek, it's kyria, was at times used as a proper name, a feminine name. And the third letter of John, as we will see this afternoon, was also addressed to a specific person that is mentioned by name, Gaius. But there is another interpretation possible 
for whom John was addressing this second letter to. And the way he writes this letter makes, makes this second interpretation, I think, even more plausible, more likely, in my judgment at least. could also be that John was writing this letter to a certain congregation, to a certain local church, and that he was inspired to call this church the elect lady and her children as a descriptive expression. The church, as you know in the Bible, is often referred to in feminine terms. It's called a woman. It's called a daughter. It's called a bride. In the Old Testament, God's people were called the daughter of Zion. In the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. And don't we today still speak about a mother church and a daughter church and a sister church, which are all feminine, feminine designations? And so it wouldn't be that strange for John to have described this church he was writing to as the elect lady and her children. Yes, notice that word elect here, because the church is God's elect people, that holy bride which he chose for his son to redeem and to make his own. And so John also noticed, concludes this short letter by writing in verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. That seems to be a reference to another congregation, also elect or chosen by God's grace, which was sending her greetings through John to this elect lady or congregation that John was writing to. And when John then adds, and her children, you might wonder, the elect lady and her children, I think he simply means the church as a body, as a unity, and those who belong to her, namely believers. John likes to call believers children, you know. Read his first letter, John, and you'll see how often he refers to Christians as children. In, for example, in 1 John 3, he calls believers little children in verse 7. In verse 10 there, he refers to them as the children of God. Uh, maybe John liked that word children because he was an older man who was writing to them. But, but more deeply, I'm convinced, John viewed them as standing in a special relationship to the Heavenly Father. He was writing to the children of God. And so it's for these reasons that I, I prefer the view that this letter is addressed to a congregation and by the Spirit's designation also then to all congregations of all places, of all centuries, because all true churches are really God's elect children. All who are true believers are his people. <clears throat> But now what is the message then of the Holy Spirit in this short letter of John, 2 John? Let me turn to that next this morning then, to the main subject of this letter that we're considering. And there are two key exhortations that are found here in 2 John. And they're expressed in two key words which John uses in this letter. And those words are truth and love. The word truth is used five times in the 13 verses of this letter. And the word love, four times. And if you like, you can even underline those words in your personal Bibles as I, as I point them out. Because they, they really summarize, you see, the main teaching of this letter. In fact, we could well state the theme of Second John, as I've mentioned it earlier, as walking in truth and love. That's God's command here to all his children. First of all, observe the strong emphasis here on truth in this letter. 
It's mentioned already in verse 1, which says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. And then verse 2 continues, Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. And then John comes to the salutation in verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. And then the fifth mention of the word truth occurs in verse 4, where John writes, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth as we were commanded by the Father. Now what is that truth that John is so emphatic about and writes about here? Well, no doubt it's the truth of the gospel that he has in mind. It's the truth of God's own revealed word. It's the truth about Jesus Christ and his salvation. That's the truth that John had proclaimed to his readers. The gospel, the truth of Christ and of salvation. And he says, now you have to continue to walk in that truth. In fact, notice the various demands that are placed upon us, what that, what that truth places upon us. What must we do with that truth? Well, first John mentions in verses 1 and 2, verse 1 of 2 John, that we must love in truth. That is, we must love, he says, one another in truth. Genuine Christian love always is based on truth. The reason we as fellow believers love each other is because we share a common devotion to the truth of God. We are standing together on the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's holy word. That that common foundation enables us to love each other, not just in a superficial way, but in a much deeper bond of faith and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our closest fellowship always is with those who share with us the truth of the gospel. Sometimes when my wife and I are on the vacation and we happen to be somewhere on a Sunday, we might go to another church to visit there, and it's been several times a Baptist church. And I right away sense a, I right away sense a fellowship, a unity, as I hear and worship with them. If the gospel is truly proclaimed, there is that oneness we have because we are on the same foundation of truth. We can never have that same sense of love with an unbeliever, with those who reject the truth, who deny the truth of the Scriptures. We all love our fellow believers because we love them in the truth. And then secondly, writes John, we must know the truth as we must know the truth, as, as he continues to say in verse one, and not only I but also all who know the truth. Those of course who love in the truth must know the truth. We're living in a time when, when truth is de emphasized in the church as well as in the world. Many modern churches today have, have a dis- distinct dislike for biblical truth, for biblical doctrine. That's not really the foundation for their life and faith. The, the focus in, their, in them is on Christianity as a, as a way of life. And indeed, it is a way of life. <clears throat> but it's a, a way of life founded upon the truth. <clears throat> Without the truth, we cannot live a Christian life. <clears throat> we can't simply say, Jesus is my example, without also confessing he is my Savior and my King. 
In the latter part of his letter, beginning at verse 7, John warns us there against those who have come and gone out to deceive the church. He writes in verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Whom does John specifically have in mind here? Well, there were many teachers in the early church, in the first centuries of the church, who, who were greatly influenced by Greek philosophy and specifically by a heresy that came to be known as Gnosticism. And that heresy claimed that Jesus did not come to earth in a literal, real human body. He appeared to have a body, but it wasn't really flesh. Because you see, for Greek philosophy, the Greek philosophers de-emphasized the body. The body didn't count. It was insignificant. They even called the body the prison house of the soul. The soul was what was important. And so the ideal, the ideal for the Christians, said the Gnostics, is to be relieved of this body so that we can live forever without our body, without the burden of a body. And that also led them to deny that Jesus Christ himself came in a body, a real body. Now today, I think it's much more prevalent for deceivers and deniers of of the gospel to deny that Jesus Christ was God. They won't accept him as the divine son of God. But in the early church, as I said, there were also those who denied he was truly human. But if he were not truly human, he couldn't have been our savior. He couldn't have come here to live on this earth in our place and to die for us on the cross and to rise again from the dead in his body. And so John even calls these deceivers in his day antichrists, opponents of Christ. And that's also why he urges us to know the truth so we can discern the false teachings that go contrary to God's revealed word. John writes in verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Yes, by falling into heresy or false teaching, we can lose the gospel, not only, but we can lose the reward of those who remain faithful to Christ and his word. And so how important it is that the church holds on to the truth of the gospel today. In fact, did you notice that John even tells us we should not welcome into our homes those who deny the truth. He writes in verses 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't talk to persons who come to our door to spread their false teachings. It's good to talk to such persons and tell them the truth of God's word. If a pair of Jehovah's Witnesses or some Mormons come to your door, don't immediately send them away or certainly don't slam the door in their faces. That will only make it seem to them they're, they're martyrs. They're martyrs for their faith. They won't even, people won't even listen to them. Instead, we should tell them that Christ is the only way of salvation And that he can be that only if he is the fully divine son of God, whom they too must believe in as the son of God to be saved. That's what you should tell them. 
And if they then begin to argue with you, well, you, you might say, well, I'm not going to get into a long argument or dispute with you, but I would just want to tell you what you should believe to be saved. And you, of course, should have some scriptures to back up what you say. But that's not receiving them into your house and greeting them as if these were your brothers or sisters. That's what John is talking about. And we'll say a little more about that in our message this afternoon. In any case, it's always important to know the truth and to stand up for it. But that isn't all. Loving the truth and knowing the truth is still not enough. We have a a further responsibility. The third thing we must do, says John, is abide in the truth. Listen again to verse 2. Because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. That means those who receive the truth must continue, continue to hold on and live by that truth and treasure it in their hearts and always let it direct them in their lives. Does the truth of the gospel move and inspire you and excite you? Does the word of God live? Does it live in your heart and life? Because then you see, then only can you truly abide in the truth and then also walk in the truth, which is the fourth response to the truth that we must do, which we must fulfill, as John says in verse 4, I rejoice greatly that to find some of your children walking in the truth as we were commanded by the Father. And here John gives a commendation to all of us to obey the truth. It greatly delights him to know that some of the children that he is writing to are walking in the truth. I, you know, that expression, I delight that some of your children walking in the truth, that he says, it, it, kind, of, it kind of disturbs us a little too, doesn't it? Because he says only some, only some walk in truth. Shouldn't it be all believers who walk in the truth? Oh, yes, it should be. And it's sad, you know, when believers who know the truth, who confess the truth, don't practice the truth, don't live by what they say and believe. And that underscores for all of us to, to try always to do better in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions, to, to truly live to live by the truth of God's holy word faithfully. That's our challenge. We must love in truth one another. We must know the truth, abide in the truth, and then walk in the truth. One of the key teachings here of John in his second letter. And now what is the other teaching that he gives us here, then the key exhortation? The other one is summarized by the word love. It's the other important word that you notice here in this short letter. It occurs four times in this short letter. In verse 1, John writes to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And then again, in his words of greeting, in verse 3, he writes, grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son of the Father, in truth and love. But especially in verses 5 and 6, John stresses the importance of love and what it is and how it must be shown That love, he says, that's nothing new. He writes in verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. You see, Jesus Christ had already given this commandment before John ever wrote this epistle. That wasn't new to John and to the Christians. In fact, God gave us that commandment already in the Old Testament 
You heard it this morning. He told us there to love him above everything else. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourselves. But the important thing to know here is what is love? What is that love? Is that merely a feeling of affection for someone? Like a husband has for his wife, or a wife for a husband, or a boyfriend for a girlfriend, and vice versa, who say to their partner, I, I love you. Well, that is love indeed, but the love God demands involves a lot more than that. It isn't merely being nice to someone, to be kind to someone, to do acts of, of kindness towards for others, a neighbor or, or a friend or someone else. Love is a lot more than that. What is love as defined here in this second letter of John? Listen very carefully to verse 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. Walking in love is the same as walking in obedience to God's commandments. Love equals obedience to God. And people totally miss that today in our culture, in our times. Love is obedience to the will of God. That's how Adam and Eve loved God. In the Garden of Eden, before they sinned, they walked with God in love that is in obedience to his commands. That's how Christ showed his love for his own father when he walked on this earth. He perfectly obeyed the father's will. That's how we must demonstrate our love for God and for our fellow man as well, by obeying God's commands, by doing his will, by keeping his law. If anyone tries to tell you that he loves God or his fellow man, but that person is living a sinful life, or they're taking advantage of their fellow men, that person is a liar. He does not know what love is. John made it very clear, even more clear in his first letter, where he wrote in chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, has not, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so let's learn very clearly this morning from God's word, people of God, that love is not just a feeling, but it is an act. And not just a single act. It is a lifestyle. A lifestyle in which all of our words and thoughts and deeds are done in obedience to God and to honor him. That's walking in love. Let us then walk in truth and love, looking to Christ, who was the perfect example indeed of one who knew the truth, who lived the truth, and who walked in love, love for God his Father, and love for us as sinners to save us. Let us in response be filled with that Holy Spirit to do the same, to always walk in truth and love. That's the message, the Word of God, to His chosen people in the letter of Second John. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we thank you for this time that we could look for a little while into this 
grand but short little letter of Second John <clears throat> with its uh, clear message to us today. Again, as your church needs to hear it as it has always needed to hear it throughout the centuries. And we're grateful, O oh Lord God, that you have enabled us in your word to once again be reminded of how we must walk before you in truth and also in love. And we pray that that may truly characterize our lives as well today, that your people may take this to heart, that we may live in obedience to that word, that it may be evident from our walk of life day by day in all our activities, that we indeed are seeking to live by your truth, because we love that truth, the gospel, and walking in love even as Christ has loved us. So, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit may fill us with his sanctifying grace to do just that. And we ask it all in the precious name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.